Good evening, folks. Thanks for joining in from the McDowell sofa. Um, yeah, so I'm feeling better today. I, I meant to do this last night, but uh, I just was not feeling that great. So I went to bed early. Um, but so th this is the second installment of our read aloud of the World Sensorium uh, by Oliver Reiser. It dates to 1946, uh, the social embryology of World Federation. And essentially it it sort of lays out what this master plan is, I guess, that's been coming for some time. I mean, this it was going on before 1946, but um, reading through this, I think you can definitely see uh, the policy changes that are in place. Uh, a lot of it sort of relates to both, um, uh, you know, the United Nations, uh, but this, the, also this idea of an emergent global superorganism that is connected through networked information. So really, in some ways, like Google, you know, is like the world brain. And, um, uh, you know, I've been doing some research today, actually, on like transpartisanism, which I don't know if you guys have heard of the transpartisan stuff, but it's sort of this idea. And again, I'm not up for people fighting for no reason. I don't like social tension just for the sake of it. But um, there is this synthesis of sort of the alt-left and alt-right that's coming together. And it was sort of planted back in the 1990s. And I have, th I think it has a lot to do with what's coming of like remaking democracy with tokens. And um, if you haven't gotten a chance, I did put up a new post, I think last night. Um, yeah, I think it was last night on my series about the God's Eye View. And I would really encourage you to to take the time to read these pieces because I know they're a little dry and they're not the trendy thing that everyone is talking about, but really we, we have to get a handle on the complex adaptive systems and how it relates to sort of this global brain emergence and to start understanding some of the languages that are used both in like the policy space, in the psychology space, in the science and physics and the economic spaces and how tokenomics fits into all of it. Because I think in some ways um, really you know, I never like to come at this from a national frame, but I do think that there is something about sort of the myth, the mythos of American democracy, that harnessing that into tokens and electronic government is is going to be important. And, and so they're going to, you know, on both sides of the political spectrum, mess things up and make the, this political situation just seem ridiculous so that they can come back in and say, okay, well, we, now we need a total reboot, but we're not gonna get rid of democracy. We're gonna enhance it, right? We're gonna make it super participatory. And so some of this early transpartisan stuff that started in the nineties, it actually was in, um, uh, 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 sorry, uh, Ashland, Ashland, Oregon, which is on the border of California. And Ashland is a really interesting place. Like there are a lot of interesting connections there, but it was um, sort of linking the Shakespeare Festival and sort of the 1970s cannabis, mystical, off the grid culture. And then they, they were bringing in this idea of town hall meetings and sort of radical participatory democracy, which again, on its surface isn't bad. And I, I posted a link that I'm going to put in one of my... Um, upcoming segments. And everyone's like, this is great. This is great. I'm like, no, 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 this isn't the model. This is not the model. Like they're going to give everybody piles of tokens that their AI will then vote with um, in the name of populism, both on the left and on the right, and um, and sort of advance this and get the impact data that would be used to feed the global brain. Um, and it will all be done in the name of democracy, but it's it's certainly not the kind of democracy I think we were we were taught in school. <laughs> and I'm not even saying that democracy that we were taught in school was actually fully accurate, but this is going to be something totally different. So um, anyway, so I've been dealing a lot with transpartisanism, but like right before I hopped on, 
there was this whole section that there these transpartisan people were in using Ken Wilber's integral theory and also Claire Graves um, and this other guy later, they had developed this idea of spiral dynamic evolution, like an evolutionary psychology. And uh, Seb Solomon has done a lot around Claire Graves and the spiral emergent integral theory stuff. Um, but so one of the people at the transpartisan conference kickoff like in 2009 in Denver was Barbara Marks Hubbard. So I had to go all the way back and start to add in like Barbara Marks Hubbard. And then there was the stuff with um, uh, my, Michael Ostrolink, Mike, and he was involved with transpartisan, but also on the conservative side early in the health freedom space, like back in the early 2000s. So it's starting to look like to me, that this idea of health freedom, but with transparency and private data, which will be your blockchain uh, in the alt health space. And he was also very much into like working with the Navy SEAL mind training program. So like fitness and performance optimization is going to be part of this conscious evolution, which is sort of what, what Barbara Marks Hubbard was pushing. So I feel like it's like evolution with tokens um, towards a collective consciousness. So with no further ado, I'll go ahead. So I, I the last time, this is the second installment, I read um, the introduction and it took me so long to read 30 pages that it was like an hour. And at that point, I just kind of cut out. But so now I'm going to start on the actual chapter one. And I would say, you know, for the most part, I'm pretty shadow banned. But if you find this interesting, like, please either like share it out or let your friends know I do have, I'm going to have a playlist of it. And this is really important information contextually for us to have. And it's not partisan, right? It's not part of the any of the regular storylines that everybody else is talking about. But I like history, and I think that the history is, is key. Okay, so chapter one, the seminal, this is Seaman, the seminal principle of scientific humanism. For the So this is a quote, for the great idea, the idea of perfect and free individuals, for that idea, the bard walks in advance, the leader of leaders, Walt Whitman. So that's the opening quote. The loom of time, and that's an interesting metaphor, the loom, because it feels a lot like weaving, like weaving stories. And so the loom of time, history appears to us as a kind of living pattern of meaningful change woven on the loom of time. So I'm just going to interject here because I'm going to interject some. This idea of time, I'm realizing in complex adaptive system theory is really important because it's it's vibration and like I didn't really like I'm not a biologist right and so I didn't understand really that at the cellular level there are like vibrational patterns that make everything work <laughs> and the vibrations like when you're what they're really after is actually like embryo like embryo like they they want to create they want to create complex things from simple beginnings like the zygote and so like within the cells, these divisions and what tells cells what to become in this process, it, it's some of it is based on oscillation and even sort of the biochemical stuff. I mean, I'm sure there's people that are um, much better at this than I am, but I didn't quite realize that the oscillation aspect of it is an oscillation like a timing, is a timing. So there are certain things that have to come together in a certain time. And I lately I've been thinking about it a lot in terms of like music and symphony, like an or orchestral, um, that they're trying to get this language that will manage this complex system as sort of an or orchestral project. But timing is really, really important. So it's quite interesting. And, and making patterns. So they, they talk about cells 
and then they start to divide and then they make patterns so that they make organs, right? And and so there's, you know, initially just cells that you can't really tell and then they emerge enough so that then they start to make distinct units like within the larger body. And so this idea of patterning and this idea of time are really related to the embryogenesis aspect. Okay. Uh, the apparently isolated threads of the social fabric are but the woof and warp of a deeper causality, which guides the pattern of cultural continuity. The loom does not work automatically. The threads do not spin themselves. For on the level of human society, man is able to alter the pattern so that as he spins, he designs the fabric of the future. Okay, and that seems to really connect to what I just read about Barbara, Mark, Barbara Marks Hubbard and her idea of conscious evolution. And this this was also part of the spiral dynamic that Sebs has talked about, like that with each spiral, there's uh, like more complexity and a different evolutionary stage, like evolutionary psychology. So, um, and that is done at a societal level. The fabric on the loom of time has many bad spots and it is blurred by tangled threads which obscure the still emerging configurations. One of the most curious of these twists of the pattern of cultural change, albeit a minor theme in the broader scheme, is that in, is that in which social analyst or that, sorry, is that in which social analysts are brought face to face with the records of their earlier thoughts and utterances. I'm going to read that again. The fabric on the loom of time has many bad spots, and it is blurred by tangled threads which obscure the still emerging configurations. One of the most curious of these twists of the pattern of cultural change, albeit a minor theme in the broader scheme, is that in which social analysts are brought face to face with the records of their earlier thoughts and utterances. And, you know, okay, so looking back, I think that's a lot about um, blockchain, right? The mind files that you will have a permanent measure of yourself. And that as you have this permanent measure, like what your older self can look back at your younger self, right? It's like having like a stack of diaries. And then you look and you sort of see what you were thinking when you were 18. And hopefully it's different than what you're thinking when you're 53. Okay. So uh, the, the number of persons who in recent years have, as we say, been forced to eat their words is a subject worthy of investigation, but we have no time now for that thematic episode. For our present purposes, it is sufficient to note that high in the list of individuals who have fallen victim to this macabre spirit of history, which delights in taunting living men with the echo of their own predictions, appear those European critics of American culture who, in the two decades separating World War I and World War II, announced to the world the intellectual sterility and moral decadence of that American civilization. Okay, so he thinks we, they got it wrong. <laughs> in those days, it was proclaimed by those who surveyed our culture that the people of the United States are swallowed up by the obsession for material prosperity, that success is our only aim, and that acceleration our only God. It was said that in our industrial civilization, the individual is being subordinated by mass production, and that as a nation, we are being Fordized. I think it's hard to imagine that we weren't Fordized. Surely there must be an imp of the perverse moving through the warp and woof of social causality for no more devilish refutation of this thesis could have been designed than that in which America lend lease material turned out by mass production techniques literally overwhelmed the enemy in a three-dimensional assault 
in which sheer quantity of material engulfed all opposition. Thus did mass production salvage the spiritual values of those critics of mass production who denounced our industrial civilization. Oh, okay. So he's saying like, we do do really good making a lot of stuff. <laughs> and we can win, win wars with it, right? Now we make a lot of synthetic biology stuff. There is no doubt about it. During the years of World War II, the United States had astonished the world by its tremendous productive capacity. But still, we cannot forget the challenge of the voices of Europe of yesterday. And the world now watches almost with fascination to see whether we shall follow through and match the unsurpassed drive and skill of our military forces with similar know-how in helping rebuild the shattered world. So I just want to point out at this stage that's like so much of my... Um, research just indicates that what happened after World War II in the Cold War and the rise of venture capital and then the application of much of the research and development that happened during the Second World War, and I will say in no small part, the frequency and radar weapons and then the weapon, later weaponization of space, like essentially meant that maybe we, we imagine that we won World War II with all of the stuff that we built and yet then the, the conversion of all of the stuff that we built in a domestic setting was used to create this Web3 open air prison. So, you know, most of, you know, when I first started doing my research in, in, in education, I was sort of shocked because I hadn't really appreciated the extent to which like the state of Massachusetts, like Boston in particular, was such a center of like defense contracting, you know, and technology. I just really never looked like you sort of think about Harvard or things like I never really thought a whole lot about MIT, like I knew about <laughs> MIT, but like I hadn't really thought about it because like Massachusetts, like from the education space was like, oh, they're liberal and they're like the smart people and they're they have the good education system. And like I didn't realize it was a war machine. Right. And in some ways, you sort of think of Silicon Valley, but there was a wedding of like the Boston intellectual property that was developed in World War II and applied to Silicon Valley that's got us where we are right now. OK, so rebuilding the shattered world into a prison for a prison game. Okay, so can the United States in the post-war era rival its magnificent war effort in the economic rehabilitation of devastated countries and in the educational reconstruction of the world generally? American is still on trial in peace as in war, and she meets this renewed challenge of partnership in creating a better world. Uh, will the peoples of our planet judge her? Okay, so peace. This is a technological peace that's coming. The country that was once described by Henry L. Mencken as almost incapable of producing ideas is now called upon to provide leadership for the world that is birthing. Are we equal to this role of economic, educational, and political statesmanship? Some nations fear that we shall again disappoint them, that we shall once again more fail to achieve cultural maturity and take the place that history seemingly has marked out for us. They suspect that isolationism is not dead, but only dormant. The world waits to be shown. And so I will just also say that um, like moving forward in, in this space, like thinking about world peace and remaking a shattered world, and also like this idea of taking democracy everywhere, that, I mean, it, it's, it's quite fascinating to think that the taking democracy everywhere is ultimately going to be, if, if they pull off what they think they're going to pull off, that we have these digital twins that are voting on our behalf using digital items to reflect our values and our core being into the machine. And that 
like all of that, these markets, and, and this is something I'm talking about in the series that's coming up, um, this idea of futarchy, eventually you're, they want to create a situation where the populace is actually betting on political outcomes so that there are goals that are established for social policy. And then there are a variety of options to get to those goals. And then they're going to give you tokens to vote on which um, which uh, policy approach you think will achieve the goal. And then the vote will happen with the bets. It's a betting vote. And then from that, they'll see which vote actually works out, right? And this is something that actually the, some of these like prediction markets are already on the blockchain already. And um, this is what Jeff Yass, who's a billionaire, the richest man in Pennsylvania, very, very politically active, is very interested in is turning um, democracy into a free market betting pool, <laughs> legal free market betting pool. So um, again, just I'm just asking people to like try on the lens, right? So we're coming out of World War II and Riser is talking about this idea of us, um, you know, re will we step in? Like, will we step in to, to our responsibility? And I think, um, yeah, I think that that's, um, we are, and it will be with tokens and it will be stuff that's built on distributed ledger technology. Okay, so section two, what must we do? Now, if the United States is to meet the challenge and live up to its great privilege and opportunity, what is to be our contribution and what is to be our philosophy of social reconstruction? Now, I will say tonight too, um, one of the things I added to the map was this guy that worked with, oh gosh, I, I'm, I'm spacing on his name. Let me let me see if I can. No, I don't have the map up. Um, he he was like the bridge between Claire Graves and Ken Wilber in the integral theory. And the, the, this idea of the spiral. And he created this like center for human emergence uh, working in South Africa, like the post-apartheid era. Uh, but then he had centers in the United States, in Germany, in the Netherlands, in the Middle East. And actually they're working on the, the like the two-state solution. This was part of their Center for Human Emergence, but it was all built on this spiral evolutionary theory. And um, you know, they talked specifically about social architecture, like organizing social architecture. So when I see social reconstruction, I'm also thinking that they actually want to construct society as an architectural element. And, and I think in that if they can create us as agents in the game as digital identities, they can start to run like John von Neumann's cellular automata processes um, and use these like mechanisms of our identities in relation to others' identities in digital space to actually start building quote unquote social architectures. Okay. Um, at the Republican and Democratic conventions meeting in 1944 in Chicago, both political parties speaking to the returning soldiers promised them jobs and the virtues of our traditional democracy. This promise is like so many others we are offered by those who are concerned with the preservation of our quote unquote American way of life. But should we not realize that we can no longer be interested in merely maintaining or returning to something or other? A wistful nostalgia, individual or social, is usually a sign of an attempt at escape from the unpleasant present. But in today's world, no country can return to its own past. Why then hope for this in the United States? The American way of life at its best never did mean a return to the past. The ability to produce orderly change, orderly change, in the face of the demands of new situations has always been our heritage and salvation. Adaptability to the unexpected must remain our peculiar gift 
or shall we perish? And so, you know, some words standing out to me, this idea of disruption, right? Constant change. Um, and then orderly change. And, and this orderly change is the complex adaptive systems part, the adaptability. So adaptability, orderly change and disruption and always moving forward. It's always a pro progress. I see a little difference between the advice of those who like Mortimer Adler with his incredible medievalism, <clears throat> ask us to return to the 13th century and sit at the feet of Thomas Aquinas and the plea of those politicians, whatever their party, who want to restore something. We cannot turn backward. There is too much ahead, and this includes possible psychosocial cataclysms. Psychosocial cataclysms. Um, which, unless we try to foresee them, will prove as much of a shock to our consciousness as the catastrophes of the last decade. Those who stress jobs only and ignore all other difficulties, the spiritual ills of our society, as some call them, are assigning too much importance to the economic factors. Economic security is a minimum need for need of the good life, not a maximum condition. What are we offering the coming generations could quite conceivably look and taste like sawdust to them? What we are offering the coming generations could quite conceivably look and taste like sawdust to them. So they're, they're pulling in the spirituality. And I would say, like, we're probably seeing that a lot more in the social media feeds now. Like whether it's more conservative Christian spirituality or whether it's like new age awakening spirituality, like, and I'm not a, not a spiritual person. Like I do think that in, in this, there is something that's well beyond the material that we're engaging with, but it's interesting that they see this as well. Like they're not interested in just dabbling the economics. They want the spiritual side. No, there is no road back. We must face the future. Perhaps we are too timid. As William James once put it, we are continually putting ourselves in prison. Okay, yep. Uh, the tremendous shocks to human consciousness in the coming years will find us unprepared unless we learn that our plans for the future must keep men's minds open to change. Already we fumble because we lack vision. And because we lack creative imagination, there is still much defeatism in the world and we search for methods to boost the sagging morale of an exhausted humanity. The truth is that much as we talk about it, we have not thoroughly analyzed the nature of morale. In the long run, there is only one secure morale, the morale of enlightenment. This morale is not the phony stuff of warlords, nor the morale of the clergyman sl sl slumbrous incant slumbrous? Yes, slumbrous incantations, nor yet the morale of the politician's promise of economic security. To build the morale of planetary humanism and international morale requires time, and already the time is short for the job we have to do. We must not permit the weary realists or the disillusioned pessimists to discourage us. These are not the days for trumpeting of doom. Revolutions are for the living, not for the dying. If the passing pageant of humanity moves with seared hearts and crushed minds, there must be other hearts and other minds and other lives. The present confusion of humanity cannot be regarded as the aftermath of a would-be conqueror's military miscalculations. What we suffer from is a disintegration of culture arising from the fact that men have been made sick by too much revolving around an egocentric axis. Okay. 
So this egocentric access, this is really important to, to know. So the book, oh, I, I've got it in my backpack, that I've been reading, The Stealing Fire, I keep talking about that. Like essentially that whole book is about death of the ego. Like that's their goal is that they get the knobs and levers and they can switch off the you that is you. And then you become part of the unified Borg hive mind. Now, I'm not against like people who want to meditate or that whose cultural practice involves mindfulness or these other things that that might be ego dissolving. But as as a, a worldwide paradigm that we totally get rid of all of our ego really just makes us like so much silly putty in this program. OK, today, the only axis worthy of it pivots is a planetary axis, a global axis, interesting use of axis there, a global axis centered on a planetary humanism. What the world needs is someone to evoke the manipulative genius of all mankind. If someone, and I have this part underlined, if someone with creative vision could come along and dissolve old habits of thought, free men from their solidified mental patterns, he could emancipate the world from the financial and political prisons of our enslaved society. Okay, so we just need to get rid of our patterns. We need to brainwash. We need a little brainwashing. Um, a great visual drama, a play on an immense scale might lift us up, cast a prophetic spell over us, and we would then feel ourselves as actors on a stage as big as the world itself. I'm going to just read that again. <laughs> uh, if someone with creative vision could come along and dissolve old habits of thought, free men from their solidified mental patterns, he could emancipate the world from the financial and political prisons of our enslaved society. A great visual drama, a play on an immense scale might lift us up, cast a prophetic spell over us, and we would then feel ourselves as actors on a stage as big as the world itself. As a provisional sketch of possibilities, we propose an impressive coronation ceremony, coronations, for the planetary democracy, marking the symbolic world beginning of the reign of universal humanism. Nothing less than that would do the trick. So a, an impressive coronation. I mean, again, that's that's an interesting word, right? Like corona, coronation, um, something that would wipe the old habits of thought and mind, right? A reset, <laughs> I guess. That's really kind of what they're talking about. And that that in this, it's about us act like playing archetypal roles. So I'm just gonna say this is this is an interesting thing that I've been thinking about this morning. There was an article, and when I was looking into Brock Pierce and his uh early ventures in like the something international gaming entertainment whatever, like he, he was, he was creating markets and digital items related to uh, online card games. But these were like the magic, the gathering card games. They were like, I guess, I don't know. I haven't played these games, but maybe like a card game version of Dungeons and Dragons where you have characters and you use the cards to cast spells and do things. And these are all archetypal. And I, I started to think that really, I think they would like to turn us into archetypes uh, within the ant computer or within the cellular automated modeling, because, you know, even the quantum computers like don't have enough sophistication to consider us as full beings, right? As um, the la layers of complexity, like they're going to start reducing people down into types, right? You know, like maybe there's a constellation of a couple dozen types that we're each supposed to have sort of certain frameworks that were managed underneath. And so this idea of a play 
and spells um, because that also that was part of the card game. They were talking about these cards as currency and that the cards were your right to perform an action. So like when you play these card games, I guess, like you get to cast a spell or you get to get an object or you get to move something. But the spells are, aren't just nouns, they're verbs. So um, anyway, I think it's very interesting that he's already considered like what it will take to move to the planetary democracy is a wiping clean of the slate of our mental constructs and then moving forward with us as actors on a stage of how that is this is unfolding. And, you know, within the digital twin idea, I mean, I, I just really feel like this is sometimes in a lot of the media that we watch and increasingly like you're looking at things going, did AI make that? Did AI make that? Like these, it is like a production. It is like a real time production. Okay, section three, planetary integrations. Uh, the motive of planetary humanism is social. Its goal is towards the general public, but its background is cosmic. The spread of scientific humanism curbs over all behavior of the human drama. The objective is to pull all top wing minds to full manipulative vision of the sweeping splendor of global planning. It's quite a sentence there. Top wing minds manipulative vision and the sweeping splendor of global planning. And like, I feel sort of embarrassed because um, I mean, my my master's degree is in historic preservation, but like I kind of took a number of planning classes and I didn't really understand what planning, <laughs> you know, I was sort of thinking like, oh, planning is good because you save old buildings and you don't get them torn down for Walmarts or, you know, you have zoning. That means this doesn't go next to that. And like, I didn't really undersee like how, the planning element would integrate with global cybernetics. But it is. Okay, our theme is set by the spiral urge, again, spiral again, it's all spiraling, towards a world state, a universal temple of all culture as a pivot of planetary humanism. According to the theory of planetary democracy, the darkening clouds of social disaster curving over the great mass fields of the human drama cannot be dispelled until we synthesize a world outlook in which religion, science, art, and philosophy are coordinated with an economic political mechanism to give common human life meaning and direction. So I see you in there, Jason. The meaning and direction, that's the cybernetics. <laughs> All right. Um, and they need to synthesize the social sciences and the material sciences, and that's consilience, that's E.O. Wilson's consilience. This cultural unification must create a pattern of meaning out of the mosaic of history. It must provide a time-binding synthesis. The morale of enlightenment, planetism, and global thinking always seeks the threads of historical continuity. It recalls that at least 2,500 years ago, Muti said, let us love one another as oneself, let a nation love another as its own. Let a sovereign love his subjects as himself. This ethics enunciated in the religion and philosophy of the ancient East is restated centuries later in the ethics of Jesus, wherein the divinity in man is transformed into the symbol, the father. And this, as the English critic Fawcett realized, means all potentialities of the past. Today, the masses of humanity no longer have a holding ground in the form of a living memory. The Christian nations still hold on to Christmas, but then in the absence of a great vision, there must eventually come the tidal downsweep 
after which no one will listen to anyone, and the blasting of Coventry, Singapore, Bataan, Berlin, and the rest will look like toy stuff. The atomic bomb will do that. But if we form the great vision, there can be a tremendous subliminal uprush to the human humanism idea, the group upsurge to social creativity and development. The central difficulty with humanism has been that it has tried to put an immensely simple message into words, whereas such a message can only be written into the form of a universal picture language. So I'm curious, like for those of you who are in the chat, like what does what do you think about it when you hear this part? The central difficulty with humanism has been that it has tried to put an immensely simple message into words whereas such a message can only be written into the form of a universal picture language. And so clearly, I mean, universal language is something that they've been aiming for, right, for, for many, many years. And, and they're getting towards, I guess, maybe natural language, like automated language processing is getting closer and closer to that. Um, but a picture language, I'm not sure what that means exactly or what 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 that would convey if that would be more machine readable is the pictures. The job is to find a layout, a picture basis so simple and so huge that it is seeable by anyone who has mastered the movies or who can punch a radio panel. Okay, I get it. A picture language is the media. <laughs> okay, there we go. That's what they're talking about. <laughs> they want control of the televisions and the radios, the frequency. Okay. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Actually. Yeah. And Sebs was sharing with me today. It was something, um, um, IIA, like the internet. I don't know. It was the military essentially saying that the military can inter, you know, intervene on the internet and, and do stir things up, right. You know, and, and do its psyop work in the internet. So, Yes, I can see that now. And universal picture language, I got it. Okay. If it were possible to use the full play of international techniques and all world drama could lift the inner lives of peoples to their own transfiguration by sheer evocation of spiritual power from within. So they're pulling people from within, right? So that's, they want to vibrate people from their heart space and they want to bring them along. And that's that's something I keep saying is that as much as there's a lot of emphasis online about coercion, I think just as important that this is going to be more likely to be like the brave new world, like the Soma. I mean, clearly with the psychedelic stuff that's going on now, the drug legalization, it's far more likely to be a lot of this Soma um, along because they would like for us to walk into it. We, they would like for us to, the majority of people to agree to participate the transfiguration from within. And then again, how that might even be happening through frequency or um, nanotech at some point. Professor H.N. Uh, Wyman, Wyman has said that a magnificent humanity awaits upon a magnificent language. But this language must be able to shrink all knowledge so that it can be put in an all history, all world basis for invariant transfer across social holes. Yeah. Harold Rugg has tried to envisage a language whose devising shall constitute the major task of our great transition. In our topology of humanity, this appears as a language of motion. Okay, so the motion, again, that's time, right? Because that's the fourth dimension in motion. A psychosocial motion or a spiritual traveling. 
Wow. Okay. So, I mean, it's interesting psychosocial motion, uh, motion because I'm thinking about JCR Licklider and he was like, well, he was psychoacoustics, which isn't the same as psychosocial, but spiritual traveling. Okay. So when this new language medium is created, the energy of dynamic humanism, a group sublimation will stream happily on its way, secure in the knowledge of a big idea behind it all. So group sublimation, because again, they're, they're, they're pushing a war on consciousness. Um, and, you know, I, I read an interesting paper today that it'll be linked when I, I get around to getting this installment, but um, I've had it for a while. And it actually, it was, it was looking at uh, Polynesia, Polynesian culture as a basis for space colonization. And this was actually written by a guy. It wasn't just a wonky paper. Like he was a foreign service, U.S. foreign surge for service, uh, later was like a lecturer at Boston University and Johns Hopkins. And it was in like the Journal of Comparative Civilizations. But he was making this case that Polynesian culture is a model for space colonization travel because this idea of people occupying small areas. So these are small, tiny Pacific islands, right? Confined areas needing to get along. They're very distant and yet they would travel across great distances. They would navigate um, and they were socially prepared to do that navigation. And they had very high attunement to natural sensed environments um, because they would be able to make these thousand mile journeys like in, in the one hand with the stars, but not exclusively, like they were able to read the waves and the energies. They, they actually talked about being pulled forward by the energy and being sort of in union with the boat that's made out of wood. And that the men who were the navigators, they would like be sitting on the, the bottom of the boat and almost like it was called like testicular navigation. Like they were feeling the energy through their testicles of pulling them forward, like in this, in this thing. And so I'm sort of feeling like this idea of spirit. And they talked about that these journeys, like in some ways they were about reconnecting with other parts of the culture and distant islands but they, they saw them as spiritual, like that they got in a boat, not just to because they were running out of food or they wanted to conquer someone, that this was a understood as a spiritual transformative journey. And so this guy was essentially making the case that, well, I will say too, in this, there are a lot of crypto projects going on that are specifically targeting Polynesia, um, which were really interesting. And um there's a lot of interest in managing these island nations around the the sea level rise. You know, for for whatever you think about that or the time frame on that, the UN has got is on all the business of Micronesia right now about the sea level rise. So they're they're doing that. And um, when I was actually in Tempe, Arizona, in November, strolling around the Arizona State University campus, which again, because of Michael Crow, is a center for a lot a lot of this future stuff. I went into a building called, it was like the social evolution of humanity building. And it was all about using like mathematical computation towards evolution. And literally like I'm walking down the halls, like bending people's ears. And I'm like, do you know about Tyler Desjardins? Like, do you know about the world brain? That's the next evolution. It's the world brain. Like that's what you're part of. And actually the, the, the students in the office seemed interested. The staff were not so interested, but one of the halls actually had a whole poster up about capturing the emotion of Polynesian people around climate change, capturing their emotion. There was something about the spiritual aspect of it that they wanted to capture. So um, anyway, I guess this just goes back to like this idea of spiritual traveling, like psychosocial and also the consciousness that the psychedelics, yeah, 
getting you in an altered state, ego death, getting it like it's I feel like it's almost as much psychonaut stuff as astronaut that it's these different kinds of travelings. Okay, uh, so a beginning for this type of humanism, planetary humanism may be found in Boyd H. Bode's definition of democracy as a continuous extension of common interest. Interpreting this as a kind of spatio-temporal, oh gosh, I don't even know this word, guys, caravanasari? It's like a caravan, caravanasari of man's spiritual journeyings. If we accept this as a substitute for the element Talistic living space concepts of recent German geopolitics, we are freed from the grotesque Siegfried and Maginot line mentalities and transported into the language medium, which remains invariant for all, so that whoever chooses may read or talk about it. Hmm. Huh. Continuous extension of common interest. Okay, so that's the part transpartisan stuff. It's all about the common interest. Okay, so this is a methodization for democracy whereby man may know what to yield to and what to resist, producing peaceful change and resolving the mountain mole hill patterns existing throughout life space as misdirected vectors of change. People have failed to realize that developments in theoretical physics, in psychical research, in semantics are as compulsive as industrial, economic, and political events and indeed sometimes precede and accelerate them so that the new culture must perforce be a social semantics no less than a political economic unification. Hmm. All right. So the world that is coming towards us is one that will provide a maximum freedom from special linguistic frameworks. And I had underlined that. The world that is coming towards us is one that will provide a maximum freedom from special linguistic framework. So I think they're talking about creating a universal language, but I think in doing that, we're actually are going to be really limited. Mental shackles are forged by verbal habits and a higher mental verbal world will come with a broadening language logic emancipation. In the Indo-European civilization, the basic language structure has provided common grammatical forms and a common logic, a limited two value logic of true and false. All Aryan tongues are akin and anyone born to one such as English is already cousin to another of the same family. But certain types of Oriental thought were never thus restricted to the either or logic and have in this respect possessed a greater measure of freedom from limitation. And that's interesting because a lot of the stuff that I've been looking at lately is about linguistics the connection between computational linguistics and AI and robotics. So, you know, they're saying that our language shapes how we look, uh, how we look at the world, which is true. Like the language that we have, there are so many things that I feel internally that I'm able to talk about and process once I see how it's described by others and, and there's a language for it. <laughs> so the, the, having the language for something gives you the power to manipulate it. But if you don't have the language, it's hard to talk about it. So, you know, many of the things that I talk about, I've encountered material that's given me a language to be able to share it, but other people don't have that language. And without it, they can't even conceptualize what I'm talking about. And so when we don't have a shared language, it's very difficult to share concepts. And so I think he's contrasting the Eastern view and the Western view. But, you know, ironically, it feels like, 
where he's saying that we're emancipated from from our language limitations, like that we would be more open, like in the Eastern world. The reality is, is that the Web3 smart contract layer is putting the entire world under either or logic is under the smart contract logic is under computational logic. So it doesn't really matter if you have conceptually, if you can go broader, if your entire world is limited within, you know, whatever he would imagine this, these Aryan tongues <laughs> that are limited. Okay. So, uh, but what is it to, uh, but what is to be the new invariant logic free from special linguistic frameworks? It is a curious fact that musical scoring is the only international language that Western civilization has developed. And this suggests perhaps music promises to satisfy better than any other medium, the requirement of a universal language. Yeah, I can see that definitely. This is peculiar, uh, peculiarly important if the object of study of science, namely the cosmos and the object of emotional apprehension, music, both turn out to be applications of a more fundamental science of mathematical logic, the study of abstract order systems. An interesting application of this idea is afforded by the study of what Pythagoras in the days of ancient Greek culture called the music of the spheres, but which in modern thought is studied under the general heading of spherical harmonics. Here we study how functions are spread over spherical surfaces, the result in a single case may look like a globe's lines of latitude and longitude in general symmetrical patterns. This method is not only has wide applications in electricity, but as will someday appear has possibilities of development through the treatment of the electromagnetic fields of force at work in biological and other superphysical phenomena. So this is important. This is important. Um, the method has applications in electricity but as will someday appear, possibilities through the treatment of the electromagnetic fields of force in biological and other superphysical phenomena. And so, yeah, Tar, Jason says Tar. Like, I have a whole other section that I need to talk about. Um, yeah, the, this movie Tar about the conductor and the symphony and the music. And I know Drew Hempel has a lot to say about like the issues with Pythagoras and how we went all wrong. Um, in that mathematical, and that really is this logarithmic spiral. So um, Sebs and Drew had a conversation about this that I can link to later. But yeah, so he's bringing in Pythagoras. I think that's that's one Drew would say of, of Riser's limitations there. But this idea of the electromagnetic force fields, um, I've been looking at Michael Levin's work at Tufts and his interest in bioelectricity and uh, how cells without neurons or a brain communicate. And they, I think they communicate through bioelectricity. And so they're, they've been trying to get that language. I mean, I think in some ways that's the key <laughs> that they're after in emergence, in um, conscious evolution is the, the language of elect bioelectricity or a grammar, like an encoded lang language, an encoded grammar of life that is linked to electromagnetic force fields that will allow one zygote to become a complex conscious being. Um, and that's what they want to apply broadly, in my opinion, to their little crumble xenobot things. Um, they're looking for that key. I think that that's the key that they're looking for. So this, however, is the work of the future. And now the future is now. 
Um, already the creators of the world to come, the map makers for the non-existent territories are graphing the outlines of the emerging world organism. Yep. Today, there are seers carrying their burning sconces in the convergent march of humanity. Pioneers opening up new territories, poets, scientists, artists, and philosophers, creators of the world to be. What people need today is vision. The unrest of the world due to the fear of tomorrow will be transmuted into an immense tidal delight in seeing the completed meaning of human history. Already there are stirrings and hintings building up towards the coming climax, crowning the progress of man's history and the triumph of planetary democracy, riding along on the surge of a great seminal wave against with the seminal of formative energy America at last reveals herself in the hugely dramatic setting of world embryology. She is the matrix of a planetary democracy, a mode of social evolution precipitating a skeletal structure which shall be the architectonic of a universal humanism, a world sensorium for a new civilization. So I'm just going to read that part again because this is really key. I think this is really key to the idea of our democracy is under threat. We have to save our democracy. Um, it needs to be radical. It needs to be participatory. We don't have to overthrow the old thing. We will build within. We will build a shadow government. And we will use the pop, like this push for populism from the bottom up into a tokenomics, into a sociocracy. And that in that exchange of tokens in the energetic transfers that are happening in distributed ledger technology will be like a emergent social system, this embryology. And so it really is this planetary democracy is birthed out of like the post-World War II American democracy imperative, like such as that is, right? I mean, in some ways, it kind of makes all of the imperial actions of the U.S. broadly in this post-war era, it makes sense if what they're doing is that they want to insert this idea of a managed democracy to create this emergent superorganism. And, you know, here I'm sitting in Philadelphia, which is sort of a center of all of it. Okay. Uh, uh, section four, vision and memory buildup. In the past, many philosophers have made man's emotions the guide to the mysteries of the transcendental world, a means whereby the universe unlocks its secrets. This is sound psychologically and metaphysically in the sense that without the drive of emotion, human energies are not evoked to capacity, right? So they're looking to drive human emotion, and that's what social media is. But it is intelligence which patterns this energy into creative form. The great leaders of the future must be experts in the fashioning of the topological structures of human energy concretions. Whoa. Like, I'm just going to say that again. Like, I would be interested if you guys have th thoughts about this. So emotions guide... Um, in the past, many philosophers have made man's emotions the guide to the mysteries of the transcendental world, a means by whereby the universe unlocks its secrets, okay? This is sound psychologically and metaphysically in the sense that without the drive of emotion, human energies are not evoked to capacity. So we don't have the energy without the emotion. But it is intelligence that patterns the energy into a creative form. 
The leaders must be experts in fashioning the topological structure of human energy concretions. And so again, the, the emotion and the energy, like th there may be some aspect that this is actually a physical energy, like the biophotons, actually, like the light-based energy, the light beingness, like our emotion drives the, the power that we have, but that has to be shaped. And it's the shaping of that system. And then, but you do sort of wonder, like the great leaders is that the, the great leaders are going to, in this thing, if, if we don't intervene, are going to be DAOs, that the great leaders are going to be like mechanical systems. There's not going to be any great leader. It's all going to be pretend bottom up managed through a centralized ledger system of a DAO. Like the great leaders aren't going to be people. They're going to be machines. The formative figures of the future will be creative semanticists. The problem of global semantics, that of social communication across the whole world, speaking to all races and nations as one, is bound up with the problem of developing a technique for releasing one of those great energy burstings or social orgasms necessary for the creation of the new world form. This, we believe, is the problem of mobilizing human energies and guiding them intelligently through the head-heart synthesis. Now, with the head-heart synthesis, this is used here a lot. And I think it has a lot to do with, again, the energy fields, um, the, the, the Taurus particularly, and a lot of the EEG metrics. So a lot of the alt health people in the alt health space, all of this biofeedback, neurofeedback, you know, it was maybe one thing back when this stuff wasn't all feeding into the cloud, but like it's going to start to program you, right? I mean, they're going to tell you it's going to optimize you, right? And it's, it's you're going to need these, these systems, um, especially if we end up like they're polluting the whole world and we end up with a lot of chronic illness. They're going to be doing that, but they want our vital signs. They want our heart and they want our, our, our mind waves. Surely the endless stirring of today are, asymptom are symptomatic of the accumulation of the tremendous emotional reserves of mankind. They are the forerunner either of a sadistic destruction of all existing forms or the prelude to the coming into being of some giant form of the future, which it is man must decide. To attain this new form, what is needed is, wa is wave on wave of great striking acts energy bursts that sweep over walls and tunnel through barriers and give history a new perspective. And I think that's the creative destruction, right? That's the creative destruction. We must learn how to muster an authority capable of casting a spell over humanity and creating a new design for planetary living. So there they are with the spells again. And, and this guy, just in case people missed the first one, he was a professor of philosophy for 40 years at the University of Pittsburgh. So, the, and, and he was like a correspondent of Einstein. He was very, very well connected. Um, very, very smart man. So when he's talking about spell casting, I mean, it's interesting. We are approaching the climax for which we have been building a rich memory setup. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was a great artist in political behavior, but his handling of economic problems frequently was hesitant and inept. However, unlike many of his critics, Mr. Roosevelt at least grasped the principle of Emerson's teaching that only that state can live that only that state can live in which the least injury to the parts is recognized as damage to the whole. This is the fundamental principle of the organismic society which the scientific humanists are striving to create. 
So I think, I think essentially like the least injury to the parts is damage to the whole. That's a bit like the most happiness for the most people, right? The most happiness for the most people. So uh, that's the, the Bentham imperative. Uh, section five, scientific humanism, a battle line. In order to create the planetary society that scientific humanism depicts, it is essential that we enlist all our social facilities and global technologies for generating and diffusing the vision, right? So all of this, all of all of society and all of the technology to make the vision happen, to cast the spell. This means that existing humanist groups must serve as a nucleus, a kind of center of crystallization for the integrative tendencies throughout the world. And again, so we've got crystallography and we've got a nucleus. And, and this idea, it's interesting because, you know, I, you know, I'm in touch with people and they're always talking about, again, the, the stuff in the sky and the lines and all of the, the, ge the geoengineering is all based on putting like little nucleuses of crystalline things in the atmosphere that, that, that create the, the mists and the, the frequency and eventually the rain or the precipitation. It's nucleation. So he's talking about the groups must be a nucleus of crystallization for the tendencies, the integrative tendencies. We need to keep in mind that this, at least for the present, humanism is permeative, not competitive. The original nucleus is not so much concerned with setting up another organization as it is with integrating the humanist impulses already in existence. Okay, so they're knitting everything together. This observation, however, calls to mind the fact that there are humanisms and humanisms. As man's conception of man changes, think about that, right, the human plus, as man's conception of man changes, humanism multiplies its forms. Humanism is a seminal idea that has fertilized many social movements, and its potency is by no means exhausted by its procreative efforts up to date. Since this is so, one may well expect to find some of the earlier forms of humanism still surviving, living on as vestigial remains in our more general cultural paleontology. This is indeed the case, and that is why we find the conflict between the various advocates who try to preempt the term humanism for their special strength. It is recognized that humanism as a label has an honorable ancestry, is a good family name, and therefore should be reserved for the privileged parentage from which one is descended. Thus, the word humanism has become a fighting word and a battle cry for those who take part in political feud or in philosophical feuds. When readers of current literature face the issue raised by this conflict, they experience a sense of confusion and frustration. On the one hand, there is the laudable desire to avoid narrowness and dogmatism and welcome as many possible into the camp of humanism. But on the other hand, it is realized that when the meaning of a term is broadened to the point where it includes everybody within its scope, the term means so much that it is no longer means anything in particular. Definitions that are too broad are just as useless as definitions that are too narrow. So confronted by this dilemma, there are those latest offspring of the humanist tradition who now propose to escape the difficulty by describing their particular variety of humanism as scientific, to distinguish it from other varieties, several of which we shall imagine, examine in a moment. If we accept this as a legitimate step in the clarification of the meaning of humanism, and I do so accept it, the problem then becomes that of establishing the traits of such a movement, parentheses, ideology, and locating the, quote, pioneers of the doctrine. 
So far as I'm able to discover, the first person to use the term scientific humanism in print was Mr. Henry C. Tracy. In his book, Towards the Open, published in 1927, we find the subtitle is A Preface to Scientific Humanism. In a personal communication, Mr. Tracy writes as follows. As for the phrase scientific humanism, I must give credit to Robert Nichols, the English poet, who was stopping here after completing a three-year term in the Lafcadio Hearn Chair of Literature at Imperial University, Tokyo. Hmm. He read my synopsis by chapters of uh, the MS. I was submitting to the publisher before a title had been decided on, and he said, what you have here is a treatise on scientific humanism. And I felt that view I expressed that which any liberal scientist must take, so adopted the phrase as a subtitle, feeling that it would be premature to announce it as a treatise when my approach was only preparatory. It seems likely that the phrase had occurred to others in England, for when Julian Huxley wrote the introduction to my book, a full year after the manuscript had been completed, for the publishers delayed printing it, he said to me that he had himself contemplated writing a volume with that phrase as a title. So one concludes from Mr. Tracy's statement that Julian Huxley must be regarded as one of the progenitors of this movement with Sir William Osler, Thomas Masaryk, Lancelot Hogben, and many others as close relatives in the family tree of scientific humanism. This approach makes the movement a contemporary affair and offspring so young, in fact, that it even the recent literary humanism appears as aged and decrepit. One virtue of thinking of scientific humanism as belonging to the new generation is that it obviates the problem that is always posed by those admirers of antiquity who try to find the origin of all things modern in this or that ancient Greek thinker. Certain antiquarians, for example, would insist that Aristotle was a humanist, but if following James and Dewey, we think on humanism as a doctrine based on the fundamental idea that the world is still fluid and incomplete with individual men as real causal agents in determining the course of events in the world, then any view such as Aristotle's in which there is no real evolution because the universe is already given, final and complete, cannot be classified as a form of human humanism, nor in the light of our definition would it be appropriate in the manner of Jacques Maritain to interpret the medieval Aristotelianism of Thomas Aquinas as a still living type of humanism, true humanism as uh, Maritain calls it. If one must go back to the past for the adumbrations, for the adumbration, sorry, adumbrations of contemporary scientific humanism, it would appear that such a figure as Francis Bacon might serve as the prototype for this most modern of all humanisms. Even within the fold of Roman Catholicism, one can find better forebears for true humanism than is found in St. Thomas. Roger Bacon or Vico or Gratri or Rosmini have much better claims than any medieval scholastic Aristotelian to this position. After all, there is a limit to the wisdom of antiquity. We should honor age to be sure, but ancestor worship should not be encouraged. Let me see how many. This does go on. 46. Okay, there's 10 more pages. I'll keep going. All right. Uh, okay. Humanism, literary versus scientific. In order to secure some sense of the confusion that exists in many writers on the subject of the meaning of humanism, a rereading of some of the earlier books on the subject is to be recommended. And such a book is provided by the volume Humanism in America, edited by Norman Forster, 
The principal effect of this volume read today is negative. It merely impresses one with the magnitude of the problem of human values, which men must tackle and solve. For us, this problem still lies ahead to be grappled with. But in retrospect, as one reads such a volume, one sees how the contributors to this book, dating back to their own work to the early part of the 20th century up to 1930, express an almost intolerable yearning for the right to believe in some purpose in man's presence here. Throughout the book and many others like it, there is a strange nostalgic hunger for the church to the exclusion of science as a source of values. In so many cases, there is no creative thinking about Christian ethics or psychology, but simply the emphasis upon the church as the counterbalance to the modern confusion. Apparently, many Europeans and Americans have been and still are unable to think east of Palestine or before the time of Christ. For them, the only alternative to Christian church is atheistic chaos. How scientific humanism is to deal with this problem is a crucial issue. Changes in economics and politics are inevitable in the face of technology and technical globalism. People will be willing ultimately to listen to experts. They will accept the changes in outer forms forced upon them. But who are our experts in the domain of human values? So I had underlined the section, so I just want to emphasize they're talking about there are inevitable changes in economics and politics in the face of technology. So that's very much an issue today. And in fact, he says technical globalism. So I think probably the global protocol is technical globalism, right? And then they say uh, that people will accept changes in outer forms forced upon them. So that also feels pretty, pretty prescient. Um, but who are the experts? So the experts are going to decide the forms, but eventually the experts like the leaders are, are going to be the machines are going to be the AI. Um, what new voices are there? What body of contemporary verifiable truth in ethics? Where are the spiritual seers? Where are the new values or the transfigured old ones that can be offered to a straining world? What we need is a psychological revolution to reorient our concept of man. Now that's a really strong statement. We need a psychological revolution to reorient our concept of man. I mean, if anybody wants to chime in with their thoughts on that, I mean, I feel that's very significant because that is where we're at in terms of a push to normalize altered states of consciousness. And in that altered states of consciousness, we'll probably also be pushing collective consciousness like the world brain, that it changes what it means to be a man, to be human. And that's like they want to create all these hybrids, right? Just like they want to use synthetic biology to create hybrid life. They want to, they want to use a psychological revolution to, to get us in a new, new state of understanding what it is to be human. There is no turning back to the old dogmas. That's what they keep saying. There's no way around. And, and I, I don't agree with that. No doubt this prophetic sense, the anticipation of things to come must be satisfied else civilization will language languish. Leaders must be found. Those will be Walt Whitman's great individuals from whom the rest follows. New concepts of individual development, participation, responsibility, and creativity must be evolved to counterbalance the inevitable collectivism produced by technology. So he's seeing technological as a collective imperative. Collectivism without mature individuals would be collective slavery. Yes, Oliver, yes, that is accurate. Here, scientific humanism leans towards a personalism which discerns the correlativity of higher order individuals in ever-widening social frameworks. The physical basis for this planetary federation of friendly peoples is already in the process of being laid down. 
It is observable in the developing world embracing technologies, which are progressively coordinating our various activities. And this is, you know, what, what Jason and I and Leo and Lynn, we keep talking about the coordination through the tokenization and the cybernetics of all of society at all levels. Uh, they, that that it's, it's coordinating uh, world trade, travel, and communication into unity. All of this, however, seems to stress the material basis of man's future. Left at this point, our discussion would be merely to commit us to some kind of international socialism or communism of the variety known as historical materialism. For that reason, we cannot leave the matter at this point since scientific humanism is not based on materialism theory of history. Uh, let us pursue this matter for a moment. Section seven, socialism, Marxist or planetary. One of the most articulate of our modern groups, the communists have argued that the teachings of Karl Marx constitute a valid claim to recognition as a form of humanism. Such interpreters such as John Somerville and Corliss Lamont have boldly set forth the social values of Marxist doctrines. And JBS Haldane has enthusiastically applied the principle of Marxist dialectic in all fields in his book, The Marxist Philosophy and the Sciences. Now, unfortunately for the Marxists, different interpreters place different estimates on the validity of the principles of dialectical materialism, as illustrated, for example, by the analysis provided by Sidney Hook in his volume, Reason, Social Myth, and Democracy. Fortunately, it is not necessary for us to try to equate these diverse judgments. For us, it is sufficient to note that the dissatisfaction which some scientific humanists feel in the presence of Marxism today comes from the failure of Marxist theory to develop beyond the point where Marx left it when he died. Instead of creating new values and new principles, Marxism has done what many other forms of socialism have done, taken over too many of the values of capitalism instead of undertaking the more difficult task of what may be called creative semantics, constructing maps of non-existent territories of the world of new values for which humanity is waiting. And I would just say as someone who, uh, you know, I was never like a Marxist. I think understanding the Marxist analysis helped me understand the, um, you know, the markets helped me understand human capital markets and the imperative and the structure of that, like that in that way, like I was an advocate of it, but understanding the, the Marxist structure um, helped me take it to the next level, like in terms of the human capital and natural capital markets. Um, but I would say that the Marxists particularly and that the, the, the limitations of materialism itself is has gotten to be a problem because now we're dealing with immateriality, right? A digital representation. So it's an entirely new nature of like claiming the means of production. I mean, I, you know, before all this stuff happened with lockdowns, I would talk to people on the left and I would say, well, what are the means of production? Like, I mean, other than coding, like the means of production and social impact bonds are literally our bodies. And like, so seizing that, like people were understanding the changing nature, nature of labor and pricing and commercial exchange um, in the metaverse. And, and they're still, I think, only understanding it at the most superficial level. So, I mean, I think that the left essentially just got bogged down in materialism and they can't actually apply any of their theories to to Web3, to extended reality. And so they're just stuck and they, they don't have the creativity or the imagination to keep going, which I think is, is an actually a, an accurate critique that Riser offers here. In present day socialism, the sensory things to own and enjoy all the things for which materialists com compete in capitalism are simply transferred and spread over a greater area. 
This is merely an attempt to extend to the masses of people the leisure, the security, the recreations, and the like of the privileged class of our society. The socialists are as materialistic as the capitalists. They are attempting social reform, but think in terms of outmoded forms of thought. What is required before real change can come about is a reform movement with new values, which are not merely economic. Actually, these new values have an excellent chance of emerging in Russia, and it would be strange indeed if out of Russia something vital in the way of humanism, human values should not develop. Now, how does it happen that Marxism, which pretended to be a valid science of society, should exhibit the provincialisms which belong to all elementistic, atomistic cultures? The answering of this question requires we glance at the social setting within which Marx did his thinking. Everyone who is familiar with the history of our Western civilization knows that our much-prized democracy is not a static ideal, but a changing, developing conception. And again, so I would say that's um, the evolution of democracy. And again, I'm not saying that, like, I'm totally on board with how we traditionally have understood democracy. Um, and I, I agree that it isn't static, I guess, but I know what's coming next. Um, and it is the sociocracy model, I think. Um, the digital sociocracy. Um, we know that there has been a growing transformation from the 18th century through the 19th to the 20th uh, 20th century democracy. Today, partly as a result of socialistic doctrine, the gross growth of labor unionism, the general demand for a decent human experience and so forth, we have transformed the conception of democracy so that it is now something more than a political concept. We know the 18th and 19th century liberalism in England, for example, was connected with laissez-faire theory of economic individualism. The classical economists believed in a competitive society where the rights of private enterprise should not be restricted because there were certain iron laws of economics, the invisible hand of providence, in fact, in which men should not seek to evade and which, if followed, would guarantee the best society. This philosophy of Adam Smith is summed up in the dictum of Ricardo, who states his principles of political economy that all legislative interference must be pernicious. And so I would say um, this is a really important piece uh, for the series that I'm working on. I touch on it, I think, a little bit in the first part. But they are going like when I say that they're going to not only tokenize democracy, but turn if if we if they end up advancing inviting the futarchy principle, like the, the blockchain blockchain voting and all of these other different aspects of like uh, quadratic voting, conviction voting, all of these other kinds of votes that I think they're going to attach betting markets on it. And that is essentially what is coming out of the hedge fund and derivatives trading markets. Um, so the people who are largely pushing this are libertarian, free market, Mises, folks, right? And what I've seen, you know, in Philadelphia, which is, again, a Democrat, a very liberal city uh, with a robust left, was that after lockdowns, the people who were considered themselves liberal and left pretty much swung right into the libertarian Mises space. And so, like, they would be sitting ducks for tokenized democracy where you bet on policy. Um, and, and this would all be done under this idea of, like, the invisible hand and also you know, there, there's a certain amount of, I think, um, like Protestantism, like bootstrappy, right? Like if I have, um, it's, oh gosh, I'm trying to think of like what the word is, the embarrassment of riches. Like if you are wealthy and you're a Christian, it's because you've been looked upon, like you're a good person, like the predestination, right? That, that God picks who who's going to heaven and who's good. And so if, if you have material resources, 
you know, in certain lines of thought, like Protestant thought, like it must be that God has smiled on you, that you are a good person because you're rich. Um, and then like, what does that say about all the impact investors, right? So for us, the most interesting feature of this background of ideas uh, is the manner in which it appears as the basis for the American system of democracy. I mean, specifically the democracy of the United States. The separation of that of the functions of government as checks upon each other, the legislative, judicial, and executive branches was an outgrowth of the 18th century notion that to protect our liberties, we must make it as difficult as possible to do anything, since legislation is likely to restrict our liberties. Some political students believe that this theory stems from the acceptance by Americans of Montesquieu's misinterpretation of the British form of government, in which Montesquieu admired but did not understand in full. In any case, this negative conception of the function of government is part of the explanation of the present conflict between private enterprise and social planning. So, so I'm going to say that this, this line is important, right? That the, neg the negative conception of government as being um, in conflict, like making putting private enterprise in, in, con in conflict with social planning, because that's what's going to be coming next is the synthesis, right, of free market economics and planned economy through the blockchain. Because I think through complex adaptive systems, I think people will be given some sort of sense of freedom, but only within the limited numbers of choices that are happening. So the blockchain stuff will mesh private enterprise, like it will allow the free market to invest in social policy. Like the futarchy will will bring together social planning because what they will say is the system of betting amongst the populace with the tokens on outcomes-based government contracts for social services will both allow the social planning because they'll say that's the plan, right? The plan is that the people who vote, vote for the most likely good outcome and then people can actually make money on it. And that's gonna how it be, that's gonna be how it's gonna be brought together unless we can wake up and like, I just don't think enough people even have the understanding that this is what's coming because they're still so caught up in the polarization, like, you know, back on the page where he's saying like they're, they need to be able to um, um, get people very emotional and then shape that emotion into the emergent shapes that they want. And that's exactly what people are, are doing, doing now. So, yeah, so the planned economy and the free market economy are going to merge in betting tokens. Um, okay. A conflict between an older and a newer philosophy of government. The uh, prevailing 18th century political economic theory was part of the surviving social context within which Marx did his thinking. He pretended to be scientific in his analysis, but in actual fact, Marx's social theory is definitely dated. All, as is well known, when Marx and Engels cooperated in England in developing the tenets of dialectical materialism, they found the economic theory reformulated by Ricardo upon evidence supplied by Malthus dominating political life and thinking. Based on the Ricardian doctrine of the wages fund and the rest of the iron law and the rest, the iron law made it clear that no philanthropy, no legal interference, no collective bargaining, as we now term it, could do more than palliate laissez-faire was therefore thought the only policy consistent with what they thought were the facts. The Communist Manifesto was based on the Ricard on Ricardian economics. It assumed that no health measures could do any good, and the only hope of the workers, therefore, was in revolution. Today we know better, and our problem now is to use the power of legislative enactments to create the positive conditions for a universally humane society. Okay. 
Um, and again, who, like, I mean, I think that there are core aspects that we can understand as humane, right? I mean, people should have their basic needs met, but then there are other things in terms of legislating what is humane in that, like, you know, we've lived through the last three years. And at this point, you know, there are policies that are asserted around people's bodies that some people would frame as a public good. <laughs> you know, some people would say that, oh, everybody needs X treatment because it's humane, right? And then there would be other people who would say, it's humane to not impose that on me. So like who, like once you start to legislate humane society and, and, and you know, I think tie it to the technology and the free markets, it, it's really worrisome. But to repeat from the point of view of scientific humanism, Marxism is out of date. Marxist socialism helped to give many of the minimal conditions of decent society, and we owe it a debt of gratitude. But today, the Marxists who do not evolve in their social views are attempting to reform society while yet thinking in terms of obsolete forms of thought. And I would agree. I agree. Like, I think for the most part, the Marxists are still caught up in obsolete forms of thought because they don't understand Web3 or the metaverse. Uh, section eight, planetary humanism. As an alternative to Marxist socialism, we propose a more up-to-date orientation, the theory of planetary socialism. <laughs> like, oh, okay, we're not going to do Marxism. We're going to do planetary socialism. Let's, let's go big, right? Okay. Um, our view is that the coming universal civilization will have to fuse many of the features of a variety of political, economic, and ideological systems. And so I would say that's transpartisan folks, right? The fusing of all of these systems. In this planetary culture, even the religions and the philosophies of the Orient will have their contributions to make. In its functioning, the world brain, the formal organ of integration of this planetary civilization will replace and transcend many of our present atomistic social mechanisms and concepts. All right, so that's the integral theory is that we're all being integrated into the Borg. For the present, our basic problem is that of envisioning projective geometry capable of producing the synthesis of intellectual forces and social vectors. Now, what do you guys make of this? People who are still watching, okay? Our basic problem is that of envisaging the projective geometry capable of producing the synthesis of intellectual forces and social vectors. So there's a geometry that I don't know if that involves blockchain or simulation modeling or something. This is a matter of forming an ideal map of the territory to be. Okay. The scientific humanists believe that they have some of the important pieces of this map. They offer their formulation as a promise and a portent of the highly effective idealism that mankind must have if the non-existent territory is to be brought into the domain of social reality. And I would say, I don't know if Jason is still on here, but like this idea of idealism, like highly effective idealism, like I feel like that's a huge challenge in the Web3 space is that there are so many people who are idealistic. Like they realize that the current situation is really untenable. And yet, you know, they're proceeding in this idealistic way with the technology without really contemplating that the power structure hasn't changed. Okay. Um, while this view takes as its point of origin a map of an actual territory, and in that sense rests upon a factual world as is now revealed by science, it soon leaves the world as it is and moves into the world of ideals as sought for possibilities. Scientific humanism seeks to create a space-time drama 
of epic proportions, which shall embody and express the social analog of Minkowski's space-time continuum in geometry. Huh. So I think I have here in the margin that Einstein was a student of Minkowski um, and this social space-time continuum. So some of this feels a bit like Talbot's like holographic re universe, holographic universe. A space-time drama of epic proportions. Who knew? Who knew that we would be living in this space-time drama of epic proportions, right? Wow. Okay. In brief, just as the physicist now interprets physical elements in terms of field structures curving the space-time continuum, so in our sociological theory, social adjustments like spatiotemporal relations are also held to express curvature. No human act is isolated. It too is part of a continuum and moves back upon itself as a kind of social karma. Following this conception, scientific humanism seeks to discover those relations which, like public time, are transposable across the social whole, which is humanity and its collective unity. The future of man rests in part with man himself, and when man has mastered the art of bending the curve of the social continuum into the world-encircling spiral of a time-bending synthesis, he will at long last have brought into being the higher dimension of a world organism, the emergent planetary being we are to study in the following chapters. To bring into being this world organism requires not only an ecstatic urge, an energetic streaming as a form creating social orgasm, but it requires also intelligent planetary planning to guide the embryological development of the organism to be. And this is the stuff that I've been talking about lately, the, the artificial morphogenesis and the, the embryogenesis, that the intelligent planetary planning to guide, it's a guiding system. And I think that's this bioelectrical stuff the frequency. Um, and I actually, I, I sent, I sent an email to somebody today. I was looking at waveguides, the idea of waveguides. And I said, could we think about like distributed ledger technology, like energy flows, whether that energy is money or tokens or something else as waveguides for this embryo, like in, in, in the space. Um, Okay, uh, intelligent planning. We repeat, in order to obtain planetary goodness and beauty, we need vision, a vision so wide and compelling that it transcends all narrow limitations and triumphs over all separatist tendencies. Again, no, nothing separate. We, it's all being borgified. When we get that vision and the new balance of forces expressing that wisdom, we shall have the psychological revolution to which all history is the buildup. Once the consciousness of universal relationship is planetarily established, we shall find the idea of a common destiny for mankind is no mere fantasy, with PH, which is odd, of wishful thinking, but a legitimate objective of human expectation. Indeed, the vision seems already to have been proclaimed by Tennyson in his famous lines from Locksley Hall, where, like Whitman's bard who walks in advance, the poet paints a vision of the future. For I, this is this is a in italic, so I think this is the the lines from Locksley Hall. For I dipped into the future as far as the human eye could see, and saw the vision of the world and all the wonders that would be. Saw the heavens fill with commerce, argosies of magic sails, pilots of the purple twilight, 
dropping down with costly bales. Heard the heavens filled with shouting, and there rained a ghastly dew. From the nation's airy navies grappling in the central blue, far along the worldwide whisper of the south wind rushing warm, with the standards of the people plunging through the thunderstorm, till the war drums throbbed no longer and the battle flags were furled in the parliament of man, the federation of the world. There the common sense of most shall hold a fretful realm in awe and the kindly earth shall slumber lapped in universal law. And I'm pretty sure I, someone told me, and then I looked it up, that Woodrow Wilson carried this, these lines in his pocket, Loxley Hall in his pocket too. And that's, again, the, the League of Nations. That was the precursor to the United Nations. So, um, yeah, and then it was sort of a for, this idea of a ghastly do, the atomic, the atomic bombs, right? The ghastly do. And the, the stuff about like the Navy, the Navy and the oceans um, and the thunderstorm. There, there's something about waveforms and, and oceans and electricity. And then again, the, the universal law and the common sense. They're, they're the common sense of most. And I've been reading a lot in what's coming lately about um, the wisdom of crowds and harnessing the wisdom of crowds. Um, so that's, that's part of this complexity theory. Um, Tennyson's preview of the kindly earth resting under the reign of universal law still demands much constructive work for its consummation. Surely one important step in the direction of the att attainment of the parliament of man is a psychological revolution. Now, when I first read this, the psychological revolution stuff didn't jump out at me that much. I didn't, um, I was not tuning in to the psychological revolution, but after reading Stealing Fire, I realized, and, and early on, I kind of said, oh, this is a war on consciousness. This is a war on consciousness. And reading back through this, like the, the way in which the psychological revolution jumps out, I think like they're very much attuned. And so, you know, again, these people don't just come up with these ideas independently. It's part of a, a I'm not saying like that, that there's a, a written out exact plan, but the forces that are behind this imperative, like they're just the latest people to carry it forward. Um, okay, so so surely one of the one important step in the direction of the attainment of the Parliament of Man is a psychological revolution to sublimate and transmute the technological revolution, which is interesting to 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 sublimate and transmute. I mean, I mean, is is that like the nanotech? Is that at the, the molecular level? Because what I'm seeing lately in terms of the transmutation, like they always say that the technology is most powerful when it becomes invisible, right? Like when electricity goes in the wall and it's invisible, like wh when you're using it so often that you're not even thinking about it, like that's the sublimation. But to to sublimate the technological revolution. I'm just wondering if that is like the frequency in nanotechnology, if we are internalizing and making it invisible and ubiquitous. This is the task of the new alchemy. And again, remember, we're talking spell casting, we're talking brainwashing, we're talking alchemy, alchemy. Um, oh, and I, I, I put a note to myself here about to remind myself about the Rockefellers really building up 
the field of formal uh, psychotherapy and mental health in the United States and psychiatry, that that pretty much like, um, you know, the Flexner report was funded by the Carnegie's and then Rockefeller jumped on after that. But like Rockefeller's pretty much built whole cloth, the mainstream psychiatric institution in the United States. So this idea of a psychological revolution, I think, cannot be considered outside of the Rockefeller's. If history is to have any meaning at all, we must project creatively the curve of human evolution and weave the fabric of a higher consciousness. Man's greatest mission is to salvage the pageant of history from the dark domain of frustration and insanity and give history a time-spanning purpose. And this can only be done by cross-webbing the cultures of the people of the earth into a federation of the world. This must be the pattern men are weaving on the loom of time. So I'm going to just have to have to think a bit about this time and the loom and the weaving. Um, you know, one of the things we, we briefly mentioned, Tar, early on, I didn't go into it all, but um, some of it was about this idea that the, the main character had spent time in Peru uh, with the Shipibo people who were do plant medicine and they would like the, the, the people who would acquire song like in other dimensions of, from the plants and then for healing and then bring them back into the material world and then represent that as annotation. But it was like a geometric like patterning, like a sort of a fractal maze-like patterning. And, um, and they would work it into pottery and I think also textiles. So I'm just thinking about the loom part of that, um, weaving everything together. And then the contrast to that was the, the conductor, the Western conductor who was doing their own form of annotation, which you know he mentioned about that being maybe the, the one thing that the West had to offer in terms of a universal language was the language of music. Um, okay, so I guess that's it for tonight. Um, the next time up is we have the mental fetus. <laughs> so make sure you let people know to like tune in for the next episode of the world brain. Um, anyway, I hope you enjoyed this and, uh, we'll do it next time in a couple more days. Good night, everybody.